0: Well, hey everybody, welcome to the Neighborhood Church. We doing okay today? It's a good day in the neighborhood today. We had our closed closet this morning. We had uh, a good number of people. I won't steal Toby's thunder. She's gonna talk about that later. We've got the neighborhood table this week. We'll talk about that a little later. But I want you to know that this is an in-between place. It's in between the places that you've come from and all it took to get each one of us here this day, in this moment. But it's not yet that next place with all your to-do list, with all your worries and with all your fears. This is an in-between place. We come from all those spaces and places we've been and it's before we go back into the world and I pray and I hope that you would leave this place more aware of the God who is with you who was with you, who will be with you, and who is with you even now. We're going to talk about our second message, in trusting in the in-between. And I want to look at the story, the short story, that we meet a tribe of people in an in-between place. It's in Exodus 15. We're only going to look at a couple verses, because I told you it was a short story. But if you want to follow along, you can open up a Bible. There's one in the seat back in front of you, to the second book of the Bible called Exodus. But as you're turning there, as we're settling in, in this in-between place, I need to talk to you about something very important, and that something is go-gurt. Anybody familiar with go-gurt? Okay. Go-gurt is yogurt that's on the go. Why is it on the go? What form does go-gurt take? It's liquid, yes, but it's in a tube, right? So our girls love go-gurt. We don't give it to them all the time, because if you read the ingredients, it kind of makes you nervous. But once in a while, they'll grab a tube, and they love this particular batch that we've been getting lately that has a list of true or false questions on the sides of the tubes. And one of them that floors them that they always want to see is this statement on it. Ready? True or false There is a town in Texas called Ding Dong, okay? Show of hands for true, okay? Less than half, maybe half. Show of hands for false, okay? You people holding up false hands right now, do you think this would be in the intro of my sermon if it was false? (laughs) Those who raised their hand the first time, you're correct, it is true, there is a city in Texas called Ding Dong, Ding Dong, Texas, so named because, and I'm, if I'm lying, I'm dying in Texas, it's in the center of Bell County, something about UT that educated y'all to figure it out, in Bell County, Ding Dong, Texas in Bell County, So they thought that was the funniest thing that they had ever read. So that got me thinking, you know, I think there's a lot of crazy city names in America. And there are. Some of the ones I looked up this week that really caught my attention, I'll give you three. And they're this. These. Ready? In Arkansas, you can visit a little hamlet, a quaint little town known as Toad Suck. (laughs) I'm serious. Toad Suck, Arkansas. Arkansas is struggling enough as it is, and we're going to name a town Toad Suck. The the second one that caught my attention was in Indiana. It's called Santa Claus, Indiana. And on their sign, of course, they have a picture of Santa Claus. Now, y'all have heard about like in the North Pole and these kind of things. The reason I think Santa Claus, Indiana is so hilarious as I was looking at this list is it says that in the 1800s, they're signing up and trying to organize a post office And they said, yeah, we're called Santa Fe. And then the government was like, no, actually, y'all may not have heard of it, but there's this other Santa Fe in the Southwest. And they said, okay, just call us Santa Claus. (laughs) Like they pick the next best Santa. And so they're called Santa Claus because Santa Fe was already taken. But this one, this is crazy. The third one that caught my attention is this. And this sounds like something that you told your brother in fifth grade. To go to. It's called Idiotville. In Oregon, it's northwest of Portland. It's called Idiotville. Now it wasn't always called Idiotville, it was called Idiotville. You know Idiotville or have heard of it? It's a ghost town now. Why? Because nobody wants to say I'm an idiot from Idiotville or an Idiot But it was called Idiotville because all these people up and around Portland said you gotta be an idiot to live in that remote of a logging community. And it just stuck and it wound up on maps and it was officially called Idiotville because these mean neighbors were calling all the people that live there idiots that are from Idiotville. And it got me thinking, not just are these crazy names, but like Idiotville, do you call them idiots? Do you call them Santa Clausians or Santa Clauses? I'm not even gonna attempt ding dong. Don't worry, there's still some kids in here. Or Toad Suckers. This is outrageous. So let me retire my dad's stand-up comedy routine and get to the point. Okay? There is no Hebrew town. There is no Hebrewville or Hebrew land. But have you heard of the people called the Hebrews? Yes? In the New Testament is a letter called... Hebrews. You've heard of the Israelites. This is the same group of people. They just didn't get their name Israel yet, so they were called the Hebrews. If you read the first book and a half of the Bible, you hear them called Hebrews. And it's a name that kind of stuck. But this is what's crazy about it. Nobody really actually knows where that name came from. The only thing they know is that it wasn't from Hebrew land or Hebrew town or Hebrew ville. So if it's not from a place, what's it from? Have you ever heard this or wondered this? Isn't that wild? A Bible word that you've heard if you've been in churches for a long time, but nobody ever says this is what it means? We can say that Israel, and Mark, you know this, we talked about it this week, is so named because Israel is a word that's talking about struggling with God right? But Hebrews were still uncertain, except for many people that have looked back through the history books and found this word that meant to pass over, to pass over. So Hebrews is not named for a place, Hebrew land, Hebrew town, Hebrewville. It's actually named for a non-place, I was in this place, but I've passed over to this other place. Then they thought that that word Hebrew became to refer to these people like their patriarch Abraham, who passed over from the place that he lived with his father and his herd and his this and his that. He passed over a river to go to a place that this voice had called them to go to. He passed over and moved. Then it became the whole people group, like Moses, who heard a voice call him to get up from where he was to go back into Egypt so that they might pass over the Reed Sea and into the next phase of their journey in the wilderness. It's not named from a place, Hebrew land, Hebrew town, Hebrewville. It's named for a non-place, people who pass over, and it began to be a slang term Even for the dusty ones. The ones who pass over have been passing this way and that in the dusty desert and mountain. It became their identity to be people who constantly lived in between. That's fascinating to me. It's also fascinating to me because we meet them in Exodus 15 in a land that's no longer the slavery of Egypt, but it's not yet this wonderful promised land flowing with milk and honey. In fact, it's the opposite place. In three days' time, they've been wandering in the desert, waiting and wondering if they were ever going to find any water, much less flowing milk and honey. They're in this in-between place. Then they're wondering about this God that encountered and called to Moses who said, I am who I am or I will be who I will be. Now, you need to imagine the Hebrew people who have looked around at all of their neighbors and when they were making bricks for Egypt, they could point to, oh yeah, that God is that guy, Pharaoh. He's the son of Ra, the sun god, and you can go find him over in that building over there. Or you can go over here to these other people and they've got this temple for that God and over there about four miles down the road, you can go visit that God at that temple. But this God that Moses encountered in a bush that did not burn up in a nowhere place said, I am who I am. I will be who I will be as if to say, let me be God for you where you are. I am the God of your father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will be a God for you even in the wilderness. This is a miraculous and wonderful invention that these people are starting to understand because perhaps, just maybe, they've encountered the only true and real God that there is. Then, because this is some dynamic, always existing then and now and in the future, Because he is always, will be, he's forever dynamic and in relationship. If you want to worship him, you don't just go visit him on 123 Yahweh Street. They begin to worship him in a portable tent. It's called the what? Before the temple, there was the tabernacle. They had a portable God On the move with them as they passed over from here to there, because there was yet no Hebrew land, Hebrew town, Hebrew ville, they had a portable temple called a tabernacle, which begs the question, could every stop in the wilderness become holy ground when a holy God is on the move? Now... Could it be that the only way to really understand this as a people continually passing over, could it be that real trust is only shaped by life in the wilderness? Could it be that they needed to be brought into a place so different from their neighbor's where you could go and knock on the door of a god and do your little ritual? Could it be that the only way to really understand that every ground can be holy ground if you wake up to the God who is here and now? Could it be that the only time that they could really understand about this unseen God who provides water and food is when they're in a place where they're desperate for water and food. Could it be that the only place to learn that this God who is who He is and will be who He will be and is so much more powerful than you ever give Him credit for, could it be that the only way to really understand what it means to be in relationship with Him is when He plucks you out of everything you've known And you're forced to learn what a relationship with him looks like in the wilderness. I think we live most of our life feeling like we're in between. I think we want to be Hebrews in our heart. We are dissatisfied with the place that we are, so let's pass over. If I only had X more dollars, or Y more jobs, or this better job or Z this different circumstance, if I only had X, Y, or Z, then, oh, then, things will be different. I think we live most of our lives feeling like we're in between, longing to put a foot over here to move to this better country. But it's in the in between that God is actually wanting us to pay attention, to learn to trust Him, to learn to call out to him, to learn to receive what we need, even if it's not what we want. Could it be that it's in the in-between that God is forming us? And could it be that it's where you need to understand that my circumstance is not the only reality at work here? My circumstance tells me I'm dying of thirst. But as we looked at last week, God has a deeper reality underneath when He gives us what we need. But we can only learn these lessons in the wilderness. You with me? You following me? I want to jump back into our story in Exodus chapter 15. Just to get you up to speed and make sure you remember the brief part we looked at last week, understand that they've passed over the Reed Sea, they've been listening to the voice calling them into freedom, but all they have been experiencing, their reality, is a hot, dry, desperate situation. All the songs that Miriam sang and Moses sang and all the tambourines have been put away and all they know now is the lowest of lows. And imagine what those three days were like. Don't just read them on the page or hear me talk about it last week. By mid morning, would your kids be thirsty? Your kids are thirsty right now in the ark over there in the gym. By midday, are your elderly in laws and parents and grandparents slowing down as their bodies are wearing down? And you tell them what you told their kids just a little longer, just a little longer, just a little longer. By evening, the parents are consoling their crying infants and their chapped lips, whispering to them just a little longer, and they're desperate to believe it. Then they wake up the next morning, and the guides are looking at the horizon. They see no palm trees, no oasis. And then day two, just a little longer, and then day three, just a little longer, and they approach a place called Mara. And Mara is a Hebrew word for bitter. And their souls are now crushed. Why should we be liberated from slavery, from that place, only to be in this place, desperate for water, dying of thirst, and God brings us to a bitter place? Moses, who had heard the voice, cries out to the voice of God and says, Help us. Can you see that we're not dying here? And the Lord answered his prayer in an extraordinary way with something very ordinary. And he said, Here's the stick. He picked up the stick. He threw it in the water, and the water was healed, if you read the text in its original language. And then they all drank. Now, the second half of our story, they're going to be passing over from this place, Mara to a new place. So join me now in Exodus chapter 15, the second half of the story in verse 25. After they've had their fill, after they've had a drink, at long last, there the Lord issued a ruling and instruction and put them to the test. Did you hear what I just said? How many of you said, Dude, read the room, God. They're kind of pumped to be alive, and now you're going to give them a pop quiz? I want you to understand that this is less like a pop quiz. This is less like a, if you don't pass, if you don't get it next time, to cry out to me and let me give you what you need. If you don't pass, you're going to fail, and I'm out. This is not what's happening right now. We read, put them to the test, and we think high school biology. Or Toby, high school calculus, so you know you don't have a chance. (laughs) I want you to think less like a pop quiz and more like this. The Antiques Roadshow. Anybody a fan of the KERA program? I'm not. Because it's boring, dude. But it illustrates my point. The Antiques Roadshow, if you're not familiar, has an expert standing here. They go to cities all over America. And then people bring the junk they found out of their grandpappy's attic. And they say, is this legit? And so the expert looks it up and down. And he has a tiny little pointer and sometimes gloves. And he's kind of making a big thing of it and saying this. And if you look here and if you look at the back... And then comes the moment of truth, right? I'm going to say that this is actually genuine, and this could fetch $60,000 at auction. And then they get a face like this dude in the screen. What? I want you to think less like a pop quiz and more like Antiques Roadshow. I want you to put yourself back into a world in which the Hebrews, those who pass over, have only been three days passed over from the Reed Sea. They're only getting reacquainted with the God of their ancestors. They're in an in-between place, three days in on the journey, and they're trying to figure out this unseen God. And look, the unseen God is trying to figure them out and see if this thing is going to work or not this partnership that he's called them to. He's putting them to a test. And here's the trick. I think the wilderness is the only place that our faith can have an antiques roadshow type of experience. If you're like me, you grew up in a church. Most of you haven't, and I understand that. But if you're like me, from an early age, you're taught, To think the right things and say the right things. To the Sunday school teacher or whatever. This morning I was at an Anglican ordination for three people. One of whom we know, our friend, the Reverend Dr. Kirtley Knight, right? Who preached here a few weeks ago. He's been ordained into the Anglican church. And within the ordination service, just like every service, we read the creeds together. I believe in God the Father. There are things that we believe that are right. And we can recite them every weekend or every day. The trick is the wilderness is what gets at that kind of test that God is talking about. It's one thing to ace a pop quiz. It's another to say, is this thing for real? Nothing will test your belief in a God who provides when you're in need. Nothing will test your belief in a God who heals like when you're sick, or better, when someone you love is sick. This is the stuff that forms us in the wilderness and the in-between. So the Lord is trying to antiques roadshow and see, man, you guys, I want a genuine, real life faith, the kind of faith that when you're desperate for water, you cry out to me and believe I can actually do something about it. That's the genuine article, not a table prayer that says, we thank you for these food, amen. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that's a lot different from crying out in the wilderness, Right? Now, here's the test. He says in verse 26, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees. Now, what you need to hear is, hey guys, listen up. I've got your attention now in the wilderness. If we're going to make it any further, you've got to pay attention. You've got to do what's right. You've got to listen carefully. You know what's wild? When do the Ten Commandments come up in your Bible? If you've got a physical Bible, you could scan through. Maybe you've got some headings. When does it happen? We're in Exodus 15, 20, okay? If I'm in the back, like, ah, oh, just finished my Mara water, I'm saying, what uh, What decrees? Uh, Dude, we've been walking in the desert for three days. What are you talking about? I didn't even know you existed. I've been making bricks four days ago. What is he talking about? We have to think about this. When we're reading the Bible, we can't just think that we know all the answers. We need to live in the present moment, in the in-between. What on earth is he talking about? I think what he's saying is, hey, obedience to God must always be rooted in relationship with God. Before we get the 10 commandments, before we get the 603 other commandments, you need to learn to trust me, to know me, to have a relationship with me, and recognize that I'm the one that gave you what you need at the last second you needed it. I'm the one who will never run out of what you need. The next story in Exodus 15 is when they need something to eat and God gives them something to eat. And then the next story after that is when they need more water. And guess what? God gives them more water. He's showing them in the wilderness that he can be trusted and he's trusting you to walk with him. But obedience to God must always be rooted in relationship with God. Here's some practical legs to this. The next time you expect someone in your life who doesn't follow Jesus to look like a follower of Jesus, you need to think again. Why should I do what Jesus says if I don't believe that Jesus is raised and the reigning Lord of heaven and earth? Why should we judge our friend and our uncle and this coworker for living in a way that they never profess to live? We should judge them not against the standard that God calls them because why should we obey God if we haven't given our life to him in a relationship? I've only given my life as a husband to Amy. Why should I run around acting like a husband to anybody else? What is he talking about? Before the Ten Commandments at Sinai was this voice that called Abraham. Before the Ten Commandments at Sinai, the voice commissioned Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And I need you to understand this, y'all. This voice is still calling to you. There is a gravitational pull Of God in a still small voice in your conscience, in the deepest part of you, in the Holy Spirit pulling you toward God. And it's the birthright of every child of the I am who I am. This is what will set them apart from their polytheistic neighbors that have their God over there in that temple. They're the ones who listen to the voice. But instead, they're going to be tempted, listen to me, the rest of the Old Testament with substituting relationship for ritual. You want to know the surest way to not finish the race with Jesus? Substitute a relationship with him that Pastor Kathy, it's going to take me a minute. Former Pastor Kathy, still awesome, awesome leader Kathy, prayed about earlier. This white hot, passionate relationship. You want to know how not to finish the race with Jesus? Substitute a relationship with Him with a ritual of just going to church. No one's going to have a relationship with Jesus for you. Students, no one's going to have a relationship with Jesus for you. But He's calling you. The voice of one who called is still calling. And this is the challenge of trusting in the in-between. To a people who listen to the voice And walk in his way. And would it it be like God to bring them up out of all their cultural noise and trappings and out into the wilderness? Because maybe when they're in need and desperate, they can hear the voice a little easier. I have a lengthy quote from a wonderful book, but it's long, and I want to just tell you the gist of it. How many other Sumerian businessmen like Abraham did the voice try to contact and call that brushed him off before Abraham listened? How many exiled Egyptian slaves heard a voice emanating from a burning bush and said, got another wildfire and turned and went the other way before Moses paid attention? How many moments in Walmart, as Kathy talked about earlier, at the bank like Sid lived this week? Did you feel the voice calling you to speak to that person, to reach out in that way, to give in this situation, and we just brush it off because a holy God wouldn't meet us in the in-between places, right? He wouldn't meet us in these ordinary places, right? No. The challenge of trusting in your situation right now is to not rest on that one encounter 20 years ago or hope for some new encounter 20 years from now, but to dare to lean in today because today is the only day that you have. This moment, this gift, is where God lives. God lives right here, right now, and the voice is beckoning to us. The trouble is sometimes we don't like what the voice says, So what he says after paying attention, listen to my voice, he kind of issues a warning it would seem. Later on in that same verse he says, if you listen, do and pay attention, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on to the Egyptians. This is fascinating to me because in our church we say this doesn't sound like something that God we know in the face of Jesus would do. And I want you to go back to a time 4,000 years ago when they're trying to wrap their minds around an unseen, unfathomable, so much bigger and more powerful and wild God than we can ever give Him credit for. And I want you to understand that they're trying to put into words, as Kathy also spoke about earlier, this wild and white-hot relationship they're trying to make sense of in real time. And I think about skiing in the Rockies. Stick with me. Why would God say something like this? Why does it sound like this kind of thing? I think because there's this Old Testament understanding that to go against the grain of God's way and of God's life is to be in death and destruction. And I think about skiing in the Rockies because you may be just buzzing along until you see a sign that looks like this. What a beautiful scene that is, right? You could get lost in the mountain. Look how beautiful that mountain is. Oh, look at all that pristine snow and powder. Y'all, I'm really jealous for it now because I haven't been skiing since a church or my parents paid for me to go. So, man, I would love to be ripping that up because I can't afford it anymore. And then I see this sign. Y'all see what it says now? You don't need to speak English or German, whether you're in the Rockies or Alps, you understand what that sign is communicating, right? What God is saying to them before the Ten Commandments, before the 603 others is this, if you want to survive in the in-between and the wilderness, would you listen to my voice and go my way? Understand that when Jesus tells us the way we ought to live and to go, it is The same then as it is now, if you stay on this path, you won't fall off the ledge to death. And we can just look, practically speaking, the relationships, the struggles, and the darkness, that line forms to the left of all people that said, yeah, I didn't do it God's way. And the amount of death and destruction and carnage and hurt and pain and hangups and habits can all prove the point of this sign. And it's as if God is trying to get their attention and saying, look, this isn't just the way of life, this is the way to life. Do you understand? The first word that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of Mark is repent, which is to change your mind. You've been going down this path, you've been skiing down this slope, and it's beautiful and it's fun, but I'm telling you, unless you change your mind, you are headed for destruction. And this is not a... Rebuke, this is an invitation to life. But it does not mean that it's not serious. You also have to understand when we say, is that something that God would do? Understand that throughout the Old Testament, trying to reconcile and pay attention and listen to this wild and unfathomable God, you need to understand that God does not cause all things But God does work all things toward good. Here's how I can say that unequivocally. God does not cause you to sin. God does not cause you to go off the path. James says God doesn't even tempt us. But God does use the situations and circumstances of pain and hardship and dehydration in the wilderness to work things for his good, if we would listen and get back on the path. You with me? Abraham listened, Moses listened, and it changed the world. I'm inviting you to listen this week when Jesus says, forgive. I'm inviting you to listen this week when Jesus says, "Give." I'm inviting you to listen this week when Jesus says, follow me. I'm inviting you to listen this week when he talks about lust and anger and all those things that have been so easy in getting us off the path. Listen to him because it's not just the way of life, it's the way to life. And God doesn't cause all the disease and destruction like we may see him doing or we think he's doing But I promise he does work all things toward good. Even the plagues led to the freedom of his people. Consider this story as we draw to a close. Eugene Peterson tells a story in his wonderful book called Under the Unpredictable Plant. Which is a book on pastoral ministry. And it's at the end of his book. And he has one of his earliest memories when he was five years old. He grew up in the wilds of Montana, and when he was five years old, he'd walk across his backyard to a big old fence. Eugene Peterson recently went to be with the Lord, but his books are still treasures to me, and I think it's a wonderful memory that he has. He'd go up to a fence, and his neighbor, because he's in Montana, was a farmer, and he had this huge patch of land. So he'd go up to the fence, and he would just marvel at this big old farmer with his big old John Deere tractor. And he'd see him rumbling along, plowing huge swaths of the field, and he longed to get on that tractor. So there he'd stand against the fence, watching but never daring to climb through. And the town called the man on that tractor, Brother Storm. Now, he said his name was Leonard Storm, but Brother Storm was not the kind of dude that you just walk up to and say, What's up, Lenny? Or, Hey, Leonard. He was not an angry man, but he was a serious man. Have you known these kind of guys just that just walk in and you're like, I should respect him. He was this kind of guy. So there's five-year-old Peterson standing against the fence, watching Brother Storm on his huge John Deere tractor about 100 yards away. And then Brother Storm spots this little five-year-old boy, and Peterson writes so many years later these words. So he stopped the tractor, he stood up from the seat, and he made these strong waving motions to me with his arm. I had never seen anyone use gestures like that. He looked mean and angry. He was large and ominous in his bib overalls and straw hat. He was yelling at me, but the wind was blowing against him, and I could hear nothing. So Peterson said that he felt like, a lot of five-year-olds felt like, suddenly, I think I'm in the wrong place and doing the wrong thing. So he spun around, and he sprinted away, and he was so bummed that he couldn't ride on the tractor. Well, the Sunday after his little disappointment, Brother Storm came up to Peterson after their worship service, and he said, Little Pete... He's the kind of guy that could call somebody Little Pete and get away with it. Why didn't you come out to the field and ride that tractor with me? Peterson was kind of taken aback because he explained, "Uh, I thought you were telling me not to. I thought you were chasing me away. So then Brother Storm looked at him and he said, I was waving to you. I was calling to you to come out. So then he asked Eugene, all right, how would you call somebody to come? how do you think the five-year-old did, right? Uh, uh, uh. Just his little finger and a little gesture. He goes, nah. Little Pete, on the farm, we do things big. But Peterson still walked away feeling like he blew it. Well, a few days after Sunday, he's back at the edge of the fence, on the edge of the field, and Brother Storm was back on that tractor And Eugene was back wanting to get a ride. But this time, when the giant farmer saw him, he did what he did again, all that big sweeping motions, the loud invitation and his big booming voice. This time, Peterson scurried through that fence and ran to him through the field in a flash. And then Brother Storm lifted him up, set him right there in front, Let him grab that steering wheel as they plowed through that field. And Eugene Peterson said, he felt his child's smallness now absorbed into his largeness. And I think what changed was that in-between moment. Once he was scared... Once he was at the edge of the fence, wondering if he could trust him, wondering if really is, is he, is, does he want me, are, are you sure, does he want me? And then there's that in-between Sunday where nothing changed from the invitation and the encounter except a relationship was forged and formed. And then on the other side, when the invitation came, this time like that gravitational pull, he was brought up, swept up, and in partnership For but a moment, as they pulled that tractor, as soon as the Lord says how dangerous and life and death life in the wilderness is, He does not say, for I am your judge and a new slave driver. What does He say? For I am the Lord who heals you. You may perceive the wave and the booming voice and the way of life that he invites us to in fear and darkness. But as we sang earlier, Jesus is the one who reveals to us the face of God and makes darkness tremble. And he is healer, not the giver of disease. So then they came to Elam, they passed on, which was so different from Mara. And then there were 12 springs. That's interesting because there's about to be 12 tribes. And then there were 70 palm trees, as if to say there is plenty. And they what? Camped there near the water. I want to leave you with this. Once you listen to the voice in the in between, the only way to survive in the wilderness is to camp near the water. Psalm 1 opens up by saying, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. That is to say, those who ain't tumbling off the ledge. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law law, day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The one who sticks close to the voice is like one planted by streams of water. And though the wilderness and drought come, fruit is still grown. And then 2,000 years after they camp near the water at Elim, Jesus meets a woman who had blown it six ways to Sunday, who had messed up, who was going to try to be anonymous at the well, and she meets someone who says these words, everyone who drinks the water that I'm offering to you will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. Because the water I will give becomes in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. And whether it's fruit from a tree planted near the stream or whether it's water bubbling up from in your heart, the water's not just for you. And when you listen to the voice, when you trust Him in the in-between, when you trust Him in the wilderness, when you camp near the water and drink deeply from Him, that's how your family, that's how your neighborhood, that's how a thirsty world finds fulfillment because you're a channel of that water, because you found the source. Amen. May you walk each step this week, listening to the voice of the one who has delivered you from death and is leading you towards life, even when the road to resurrection leads through the wilderness of crucifixion. Remember that the voice of the one who spoke so long ago is still speaking to those who are willing to listen. There is a voice in the wilderness inviting us to drink deep of the living water so that it might flow in us and through us, quenching the deepest thirst of a desperate world. May you go go from this place filled to the brim with God's peace and presence.